Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Cloud Architects Podcast. Super excited today to be, as always, joined by my co-host. But before I introduce him, I got to brag on him just a little bit because uh, he's been all over the industry press, press over the last uh, week or so with some great work that uh, that him and, and the, the folks at MB Consult have been doing around Zero Trust and Zero Trust Framework. So Nick, man, it's, it's always good to see um, you know, we have lives outside of the the, the podcast, right? And so it's always cool when that, when that type of stuff uh, pops up. But uh, you know, congrats on all the hard work. I know you guys have been working on that for for a good while now. Uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about it, uh, not to take away from our guest anyway. But joined as always by Mr. Nicholas Blank in cold Cape Town. Thank you, thank you, Chris. Stop, stop. No, don't stop. Uh, it, yeah, you're right. It was. It was uh, more than a year's worth of, of labor of love and so much wrestling with this topic of how do we make zero trust available as a security framework to the normal human being. And this, the normal human being is basically anyone in a leadership position who has to understand what security is and what are you paying for. And uh, Robbie, who I'll introduce in a second, and I, I think we share a very pragmatic view on security and on life that what we do might be very not difficult but it's it's fairly technical and those technicalities shouldn't stop someone who wants to make a responsible decision for understanding what they're actually paying for so with that i want to introduce uh, a longtime friend of mine robbie padrica and um i one of the things and i have to brag on robbie here for a second is that I've known Robbie for decades to fearlessly strive to do the right thing for the right reasons in an industry where it's so easy to create FUD and overcharge for, for services, especially when it uh, gets to anything from a consultative or a security nature. And so with that, Robbie, welcome to the show. Nicholas, Chris, thank you very much. That's incredibly gracious of you. <laughs> but um, yeah, you, you you actually spot on, on on the topic. I think our industry can be a little bit like a shock tank at times. And I think uh, having the fortitude to try and do the best for the for the customer, for the client, is that's the right thing to do. So thank you for having me on today. Yeah, you're welcome. And I want to drill into that for a second, Robbie, and let's understand your why. And as a technical person myself and being surrounded by technical folks who want to do the right things by our customers as opposed to just doing a drive-by sale, as it were, tell us a little bit of why do you care? Um, I think partially it's because I... My, my work life grew up in, in an open source environment. And I think there is that sort of um, sense of wanting to help others, a sense of community. Uh, and uh, I think that translates into my business life uh, directly. And uh, also, I will say being more technical uh, means that that is the area that I focus on more than for example, business profit. Uh, so I, I, I think that that's sort of where that comes from. I think it's, it's fair to, to say that as responsible adults ourselves, we're not just going to altruistically throw profit into the wind because ultimately we need to eat to pay salaries. 
However, on the other side of the coin, I've also known you as a champion for open source technologies, even though you are very enterprise aware and that you deal in enterprise. Can you talk to us about why you would do open source technologies? And this is everything from what you're running on your desktop through to running not only mature SOC seam and also SOARS for customers. I mean, there's a massive divide in there. Talk to us about, you know, why open source and does open source actually fit into the enterprise? When you look at the large enterprise vendors who come along with an XDR offering, as an example, that does uh, a defense at every possible endpoint, ties it together with AI, and then spits together a an event to an analyst to have a look at with some pre-correlation. I mean, obviously that needs lots of compute and it's very expensive, but how does open source even compete in that type of arena against the large corporate with seemingly unlimited budgets in the enterprise? Um, I think I'll start off by saying that open source has an unusual uh, view on, on, on the software world. And, and that comes from that, that community aspect where you've got, uh, for lack of a better word, Tom, Dick, and Harry sort of beavering away in their, their garage, uh, generating some piece of software uh, that may or may not be useful to, to others. But I think with input from companies like IBM in the early 2000s and Red Hat uh, in, in the mid-2000s, um, they've sort of... Uh, given uh, open source a more enterprise sheen and and suitably so i think i think open source has grown up and we've seen uh, especially commercial companies embracing op open source and and you if 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 i say the the word microsoft you might nod your head in agreement yeah so um, I, I think certainly at this point in time and, and for the last decade, uh, open source has grown up. And uh, in, in the commercial world, we see a lot of open source componentry, especially being used as the building blocks to commercial output. So uh, so, so definitely, um, I, I don't think there's any, any lack there at the moment. There's obviously an issue when it comes to the code quality because there's no single uh, a, a company to, to check on the code quality of open source projects. That has changed in recent years as well, along with the security aspects of open source software, where a number of commercial companies have realized that there's a problem here. There's perhaps a particular library that is uh, coded by one single guy that's used across the entire planet. It's an important library. So uh, some, some companies have gotten together, they've created funds uh, to support open source developers, uh, not only in the coding practices, coding policies, et cetera, but also for, um, for, for the security aspect of their software. They don't have the funds to employ third parties to, to, to check their software. So uh, th that sort of gives open source um, a stepping stone into the enterprise. And if we look at the enterprise, a lot of enterprises and companies are using open source. Sometimes they know it and sometimes they don't, but it is everywhere. 
Uh, and I think we have to accept that. We have to work with it as organizations, enterprises, and we, we, we need to catalog it in our companies and uh, like we do with anything else, asset management-wise, and, um, and then uh, see, is this something that's for us? Uh, is it useful? Is it secure? Does it have support? You know, all, all the standard organizational policy things that, that we need to follow. So, so yep, I'll mention one uh, particular uh, um, open source project uh, you might know it called OpenSSL. And OpenSSL is probably an open source library that's used the most across the world, and the, the number of installations is numbered in the hundreds of millions. Um, a couple of years ago, they had a critical vulnerability um, that was regarded, you know, as, as quite bad. And I think at that point, a number of commercial companies realized that we're depending on the software. So we need to actually uh, contribute to this open source project and others uh, to make sure that the software that we depend on works well and is secure. I think you, I, I just had like shivers when I, when I heard that, because I was reminded of the log4j vulnerability from like, 18 months ago as well, which is very similar, yep. right? There's a lot of organizations didn't even know that they had Log4j being used because yep. it was bundled into commercial offerings. Um, and and it, it kind of begs the question is if you take something that is open source and freely available and you commercialize it into your own offering, it, you know, to make it more appealing to the masses, right? Because now it's technically it's a, it's a, it's a commercial offering. Well, you're still relying on, on the, the developers and the, um, you know, the, the, code management and lifecycle management of the, the project itself, which I think, again, in, in many ways is, it's either a good thing or a bad thing, right? I know a lot of folks love the fact that open source pro uh, projects, because the source is open, can be audited by anyone, right? And, and, and again, you know, bugs and vulnerabilities can be found by anyone, but it just takes the motive behind the person finding it, right? If that person is finding it for personal gain, uh, or for the be the better of the community, because they're either going to disclose it or they're not, right? They're going to they're going to sell it on. So uh, it's a very fascinating conversation, and you can, depending on which side of the fence you sit, right, you could go pretty deep into uh, on either side. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'm extremely pragmatic about the subject. I understand the organizational concerns with regards to using open source software. Uh, I think anyone in enterprise and even SME needs to understand those concerns. But I don't think those concerns only apply to open source software. Certainly, uh, certainly some of them will apply to commercial software as well. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think, uh, you know, open source software is here. We use it and we need to treat it as an enterprise uh, product. And, and we need to apply exactly the same uh, considerations to it as we do commercial software. And I think the thing is that it, it extends beyond for a lot of folks, when they think open source software, they think of Linux. And that's like the only point of reference that they have, right? Is, well, I'm, I'm going to download this SUSE thing or whatever it's called. And I'm going to install that's, and to them, they're like, well, no, we won't do that. We want windows. But as you said, it can be as small as just a library used in, you know, a complete bundling of, of some other commercial platform that you don't even know about. Yeah, and 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 Nicholas, further to your your question with regards to to the the, the security components in open source software, 
things like XDR, MDR, EDR, etc. Um, in that area, we tend to find more uh, dual licensing uh, type of projects. Mm-hmm. If we look at companies like CrowdSec and um, and uh, Sandfly Security, uh, where they have uh, dual commercial and and community versions of of their software. Um, and I think uh, that's a very niche specialist area, and we find more that commercial companies are driving that in the open source space. Um, yes, there's been projects like Packet Fence for Macs around for, for decades already, but um, especially when it comes to newer technologies, uh, I'll just call them the, the, the DRs, because <laughs> there's so many of them these days. Um, it, it, it's, it's typically uh, commercial companies that are driving it in the open source space, which is actually very, very interesting. Um, and, and I think it gives you a, a sense of uh, what, how, what commercial companies think of open source these days. I think they, they realize that it's come of age and that it's something that they need to embrace. Robbie, I want to to stay on this point for a second, and I enjoy reading your blog, and we'll add your blog to the the show notes so that folks can see what we're talking about. And on one of your blog posts is IT security for the small business, and in there you've got thirteen steps that start with the um, very much like the NIST framework. Let's start with a digital inventory of what you have, because I know very few customers actually know what they have. And it ends off with uh, vulnerability scanning and penetration testing. Now, I could argue that if I go to, and I'm just going to throw three vendors out here currently in the Magic Quadrant for XDR. So if I pick on a Microsoft, a CrowdStrike, and a, a Trend Micro, for example, I could get 13 tools from the same vendor with one or few consoles and arguably the magic single pane of glass that we've been promised by the industry for, I don't know, three decades, but never seem to get to. If you look at a company who says, I want to embrace open source and community offerings very seriously, and I want to have best of breed. For me, this is a little bit of the same territory where I have one brand of AV on my endpoint. I manage my firewall, something else. I might still do some kind of web inspection with something else. And very quickly in an enterprise scenario, we can get to between five and 10 different vendors, all best of breed, so to speak. And the issue for me there is that you've got huge management overhead because you've got five or 10 different consoles, no integrated log streams. And if you're doing any type of follow a lateral move from say, a directory service over to a file system to a workstation. You've got all these different types of logs to to look at. So I'm a huge advocate personally for trying to simplify things. And with that, from a commercial point of view, it's very easy for me to say, go with a, a single XDR vendor because you basically have a, uh, a, a, in theory, you have a single console, right? But looking at your article, and it's a fantastic article, by the way, because it really gives companies a place of a way to start and uh, and steps to follow, very pragmatic steps to follow. But are they looking at 13 different vendors? How would you do security of an open source nature 
without having 13 different consoles. So uh, let, let, let me start at the small business, uh, because I, I think that's probably the most difficult area. You, you're dealing with, uh, with uh, companies that might be mom and pop shops, uh, small budgets, and uh, no support, no IT support. So they are absolutely dependent on their IT partners and their IT support to a, advise them um, on what they should do in terms of security and then implement it. Yeah. So it, it's extremely difficult when you're working with a limited budget and that's um, where open source can play a very uh, pivotal part in, in those smaller companies. Um, so the, the, the trick here is to have the skill in your IT support partner to actually implement those and actually give you business value, uh, you know, in that area. We, we find uh, m most um, IT support or what we all call desktop support companies, and I don't mean any offense here, do not have the appropriate skill to to progress beyond uh, simple IT solutions and and the desktop and and maybe entry level server work. So um, so it's absolutely critical that smaller companies get uh, IT support partners that have the skill. Uh, to 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 advise them on on what they should be looking at and be implementing it uh, with within their cost envelope. Um, as we move up up the scale and the the capability of organisations you know improves the IT capability, um, then I, I think you, you probably tend to look more at, at commercial solutions with a a mix of open sourcing included. And I'll give an example. You might go for a commercial uh, vendor in terms of your, your primary security functions, for example, uh, firewalling, uh, security, uh, logging, analytics, et cetera. Uh, but then you might be using Elasticsearch or uh, Greylog or something like that on the back end to aggregate logs from a variety of different products. Uh, and then presenting it to you in a, in a, in a single pane for, 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 for viewing purposes. That's, that's one of the areas where, where open source has done very, very well is log aggregation, log analytics, etc. Et There's quite a lot of products that provide that, that, that kind of feature set. So um, uh, um, it's, it's difficult from, from a commercial vendor point of view because very few commercial vendors offer the entire menu of, of, of security uh, point products, okay? Uh, I'll, I'll mention, uh, for example, um, perhaps companies like Palo Alto and, and Fortinet uh, that, that, that are leading that, that, that group of vendors in terms of the broadness of their product offering. But certainly it's few and far between so the, the concept of a single pane of glass is not attainable. I, I've yet to see it. Uh, it's extremely difficult to do because you are going to end up with a number of vendors in your environment. And I think it's how you manage uh, your expectations for what you want as a customer and what the vendors are able to give you in, in, in return is going to determine what, what the outcome is. But as I said, don't discount open source software in this environment because uh, there are a lot of options uh, to uh, wh where you have security aggregation, especially that you need to do. 
that open source can help in, in those areas. Chris, let me throw this question over to you since you, you are security qualified and you, you went through a, a lot of work to become a CISSP. If you had to think about risk profiles, commercial software and open source, I think with the, the advent of, well, bear in mind we had a, an episode around exchange server, Swiss cheese or fine wine. We've had um, <laughs> firewall vendors in the news lately or um, commercial firewall vendors for being the source of vulnerabilities based on, on um, vulnerabilities that are found in their VPN platforms. In, in your mind, is there such a large divide between open source and commercial software? If we think of um, the kind of injection attacks we've had with SolarWinds over the last few years, where do you stand? You know, I, I think fundamentally the the risk profiles and the way you you manage those things, it's very similar, right? You, you can't, just as you can't expect to deploy Exchange Server and never patch it, you can't do that with any open source thing either, right? Now, you may find um, that the one op one person operation open source binary that you're using for something, that person may take a little longer to come around with a, you know, from a disclosure and to a patch, to a release of that patch than what Microsoft may, if, you know, if someone discloses something to them because Microsoft will pay a bug bounty and all of these other things. So they obviously have a lot more eyes on their code, right? So, so there's, there's obviously that risk to think about um, if something goes wrong, how quickly can we get support for it? Not only in terms of the vendor who installed it to come back in and, and patch it, right? And specifically, if you're in a small um, environment and maybe you're running some um, open source mail server or, or, or something like that, and you need specialist skill to come in and, and, and manage it. Um, so I think that's important to think about, right? Is that the speed to resolution for, for things like uh, updates and, and patching and how quickly the vendor may come out. Now, is it a good idea to go with an open source product that no one has updated in the last six years? Well, probably not, right? But you, you can make that decision. Again, that's the same decision as would you go, would you go and install software where the vendor is now defunct? Like you're not going to get support from that either, right? So I think you need to use the same logic and the same you know um, frameworks when you make the decisions around is this thing right for my business? It doesn't matter if the software is open source or commercial. You need to look at it from the same perspective and make sure that it ticks the same boxes, right? Is it something that we absolutely require um, across the business, or is it a nice to have thing that everyone's talking about, right? Um, let's see what the requirements are. Does it meet all of our requirements? How does it sit as far as you know, um, I don't know, uh, the other compliance things and, and supportability and, and all of those other frameworks and controls that you need to apply. Uh, and if you can tick them off for either or, then obviously then there's, there's not as much of a big deal. I think, I definitely think we are seeing, um, certainly, you, you know, you mentioned Greylog, um, Robbie, I think that's that's one you come across fairly often in the enterprise, right? It's before before Seam was the thing that it is now, like, you know, there were, there were a lot of organizations that, that kind of uh, used Greylog. I mean, it, it sort of set the standard for a long, long time. And I think also like any of these open source projects are, you know, one check away from becoming the next startup, right? Because as soon as they, they get the funding, all of a sudden it's no longer an open source project and it's a startup and these guys, you know what I mean? So I think a lot of things that we are, we see as these, these um, sort of disruptive products started as an open source project before they were able to get their funding through. So I really don't think anyone should be discriminating on stuff based purely on whether the fact that it's open source or not. Um, 
I think if you apply the same logic to any vendor decision that you would make or software selection decision that you make, I think you would get to the right answer regardless. Hopefully that kind of mumbling answers the question that you... Yeah, that's me. Yeah. Robbie? Uh, Chris, I'll add on to that. And, and for those uh, listeners and viewers who, who don't understand the the sort of development model for, for mainstream open source, uh, you know, there's, there's a few major commercial open source companies around the world, for example, SUS uh, and, and Red Hat. And, and it sounds like uh, opposites uh, meeting their open source and commercial. But that's essentially what they are. Um, and if you take a company like Red Hat, uh, the actual product, Red Hat Enterprise Linux Server, has approximately 11,000 packages in, in the operating system. And Red Hat's uh, promise to customers that make use of their product is that they will support each and every one of those packages in their product. And, and that means behind the scenes, Red Hat, SUS, and other companies, commercial companies, are making the effort to uh, track um, all those individual products, uh, to track the security aspects and the vulnerabilities and the statuses of those projects, because they are including those projects in their uh, commercial product. So it, it's to their benefit uh, to make sure that these products uh, survive and not only survive, but survive well and are secure. So yes, there is a lot of infrastructure, a lot of force, a lot of commercial power behind uh, open source, mainstream open source, that is. That's, yeah, that's really good information. And I, and I imagine, so uh, was it, who's, the, who's the crowd that uh, does that for Ubuntu, it's canonical. Is that what they're called? Yeah, correct. Yeah, so, so similar, similar thing there, right? So I, that's a that's a very good point. Is that if you have the the support and the backing of of that that type of project, right? It, it makes sense. Um, you know, what are you what are you afraid of ultimately then, right? And when you yep. think about again the fact, you know, so my 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 favorite password manager, and we never, we ne I mean, I guess we should do an episode at some point to talk about the stuff that we like to use, right? New because I know, you know, we have our things that we like to use. My password manager that I like to use is a password manager called Bitwarden. And I've been using it for a little while now. And I really like Bitwarden. For one, they have a free version, but, you know, they also have like a paid version that costs like 10 bucks a year or something. So it's actually really not that bad to to be able to support the project. Um, but their stuff is all, it's all open source, right? So if you worry about the fact that you don't actually know what's going on under the covers of your password manager, well, that seems like a, an obvious thing is to use something that's open source because, well, people are going to be able to take a peek at the code and they know that if the developers say the, the you know, encryption algorithms are doing this thing, well, it can be verified. It's not just hidden in some black box that you don't actually know what's happening, right? Other people, again, would argue, well, if it's open, then you can find the exploits more easily. You know, I think it's, you know, there's always going to be those two sort of conflicting or or argue both sides of the argument, right? Um, it depends on what you feel more comfortable with, well, with in your sort of threat um, model well, and how you... Let me yeah. give you an answer to that, and then I'll pose a, a question to Robbie very much in this vein. And I, I like using a commercial product for my password vault, and that's because I'm able to hold someone to account if something goes wrong. So I'm buying for something, um, or sorry, I'm buying a service for something, and that means that as long as myself and the vendor agree on the terms and conditions, I'm giving them money and they're earning my risk. 
right? So, and go on, Robbie. <laughs> so, so I would suggest that that's not a guarantee. And 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 I think the recent LastPass hack, and and I, I will say this quite clearly, LastPass is bumbling dealing with the the whole saga has been a, a point demonstrating that even commercial companies can struggle with this aspect of uh, you know disclosure mm-hmm. and 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 solving these types of, of, of security issues i i, I think uh, uh, commercially uh, lastpass has you know made some some problems for themselves and and you can hear in the industry that a lot of people are looking for alternative solutions. Mm. So yeah, I I think it's uh, company specific, and whether it's open source commercial, I I don't think it matters. There's open source companies that have made a mess of disclosures in the past as well, and I think it's up to the specific company how they deal with uh, security disclosures, and whether they take their clients into their confidence. If I'm if whether I'm paying for a product or not, I want to feel part of the the product, and I want to feel that the vendor has my interests in 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 their mind, and uh, it can go either way. I'm I'm chomping at the bit to to jump into that one because having dealt with highly regulated customers, you know, people who run nuclear reactors and things that are of a nature that need to be highly regulated, when we've worked with them. If there wasn't a vendor that they could pay to absorb their risk or at least mitigate the risk. So um, understanding that risk is, is, is a shared accountability model. I'm buying some uh, software from you. I need to follow the, your best practices to implement this thing to have a hopefully predictable result. I apply your patches as they come out from time to time. I address zero-day patches on the day, etc. So in this type of regulated industry, we had a ban on open source software that we had to respect purely because there was no one to carry the can of risk. So how do we deal with that when there are, frankly, stunning open source products? And I want to call them products because someone's creating, right? But Robbie, who owns the risk if I can go to Kaspersky, Trend, Microsoft, CrowdStrike, I can give them money, right? And um, there is a um, a commercial relationship that I can argue I can hold them accountable for the quality of what they produce. And there's a risk mitigation in there. In a regulated you, industry, you're a US is there space. No, you cannot go to Kaspersky because Kaspersky is not allowed in the United States. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah sorry well, that we're teasing you with this Russian thing, but. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> No, not at all. And, and, and so in, in a regulated industry, who carries the risk can from an open source point of view? And, and how, do we, how do we deal with that as responsible adults when we want to use OpenSSL, for example, because it's baked into, I mean, it's baked into most operating systems that people don't know where, that it's there, right? So yeah. how do we deal with this, Robbie? So, Nick, I, I think that goes to sometimes the, the confusion that people have on how open source is, is developed and, and managed and uh, distributed, etc. And I think uh, I mentioned Reddit uh, previously. We've, we've talked about other companies like Susan Canonical and there's many others. But 
these are commercial companies that are offering a commercial product with the equivalent guarantees that you would get from other vendors. I also work with customers in highly, highly regulated industries, and many of them are running their core, for example, ERP systems on, on top of, for example, SUS or, or Red Hat, because these vendors have made sure to certify their products with the application that the customer needs to use. And, and yes, absolutely, that, that's critical to, to, to the customer. But to an extent, the application vendor is making sure that the backend stack is actually suitable for, 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 for the application. So, you know, if SAP come, come along and say, or Oracle for that matter, if they come along and say, if you want to run our ERP software, you need to run this backend stack or, or these options are certified to run our, our application stack. Then I think you, as 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 a customer, should be well, um, you know, well expecting to receive the same guarantees that you would for any other uh, uh, commercial software. I would agree, and I don't think Red Hat Red Hat Enterprise Server is a open source product at that stage. It's it's a commercial product that's being supported no. commercially. <laughs> No, uh, it, it's still an open source product, and it's still bound by the open source licenses uh, that that apply to 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 that product, be it new or Apache license, whatever the case may be. Uh, in in fact, a product right like RHEL, Red Hat Enterprise Linux, will comprise many open source licenses, and it's something that Red Hat themselves have to have to juggle in the back end. It's something that you don't have to worry about, but. Certainly, RHEL is still absolutely an open source product, and you can uh, um, create an account on, on, the, on the Red Hat portal, and you can download Red Hat Enterprise Linux and use it for your own purposes. Um, the, the commercial part of this typically comes in with the support aspect of what the company offers. So Reddit are not actually charging for RHEL as a product. They are charging for the support, the maintenance, and the subscription services that they offer on the product. I know it's a, it's a very slight distinction, but it does still mean that the product itself is fully open source. Um, I'll give a, a perfect example of, of how, how that works. Um, CentOS has been an, a, a well-known well-supported open source uh, project for for uh, probably about 15 years. And uh, I think it was just around the 2010 mark that Red Hat actually purchased the rights to the CentOS project. And they basically became the custodian. And uh, that was a, a pure play open source project, no commercial uh, um, attachments to it at all. But Reddit used CentOS as a base to test the applications, the software, the services within the operating system and build Red Hat Enterprise Linux from. So RHEL is based on, on CentOS. Hmm. At the end of uh, actually mid-2021, Red Hat decided to drop a bombshell and, and, and it was a true bombshell because CentOS was at that time used completely across the planet in all sorts of areas from automotive to uh, to AI to web hosting other internet services etc 
and basically they said for uh, for CentOS version eight, which whose support was supposed to end in twenty twenty nine, they were expiring support for CentOS eight in December of twenty twenty one. Six months later, after the announcement, it was an absolute bombshell. And the amount of commercial companies that make use of CentOS as a base for their commercial products is incredible. There's a, there's a lot of commercial companies that make use of it. You you might be surprised. So the, the nature of this is that within a month, two different projects, uh, Alma Linux and Rocky Linux, had sprung up. They created boards and, and uh, trusts to manage those products. And within two months, both of them had RHEL equivalents out available. And Alma Linux, for example, at the moment is probably the primary replacement for, for, for CentOS. Uh, and that's a prime example of, um, you know, if, if something doesn't work or someone breaks the project or they, they, they want to close down the project or, you know, whatever the case may be, someone else picks up the button, carries on and gives you an equivalent service or product. It's a very interesting point that, right? Because I was about to say before that story that if you were to use your, your, your normal sort of due diligence processes in selecting a software vendor for something, you, you would check for things like updates and the availability of updates and frequency of updates and, and that type of thing, right? And obviously no one in their right mind would select a product that doesn't receive updates or can't be updated. So, you know, you don't end up with the situation where you have, you know, some thing that you're running your very important system on um, that doesn't, you know, that has like open SSL 0.6 and has never been updated in the last 20 years, right? Because that's a problem. So if someone is using, um, going to select an open source product or a product that makes use of open source packages, provided the updates are, are being done and handled, and you would go through that whole process of making sure that that's all good. Now, how would you handle that as a business if you, you've gone through this due diligence process and you went, yep, we're going to deploy CentOS because, you know, support until 2029, and then Nick Minute, after you've deployed, you know, your whole data center, all of a sudden now you've only got six months left. That would be, I mean, that would be a real, and I think that would be enough to put a lot of people off doing that again, because trust. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, and, and, and Chris, I'll, I'll add there that uh, uh, personally, I, I, I would never recommend CentOS in, in a commercial uh, enterprise in environment as, as, as a core product. I would offer the client the commercial version of that. It's exactly the same product. But the commercial of, version of that via Red Hat, and and the same goes for SUSE's products, uh, Ubuntu's products. They've they, they've all got their their sort of commercial versions of that, mm. which is exactly the same product. It just comes with support that you pay for. So uh, I I think it's important, uh, you know, when it comes to SME and 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 the enterprise to acknowledge the importance and the criticality of the systems, hardware, software, whatever, the systems that that enterprise runs and the risks associated with anything that is operating within that environment, it's critical. And and the fact that I've, I've been an open source advocate for over 30 years means absolutely nothing. I gauge uh, the, the requirement of the customer on a case-by-case -case basis and I'm always going to err on the side of caution. 
So if it came to uh, the, uh, the option of running CentOS or Red Hat, I would, uh, as, a, as a core product, I would suggest to the customer to run the commercial version because you're going to get the support from Red Hat. And I have to say, if you've ever dealt with Red Hat support, it, it's a breath of fresh, fresh air. These guys, uh, their technical support, their engineers know what they are doing. They are fantastic to deal with. So um, I would have no uh, concerns um, recommending the commercial option in, in, in that case. So last two questions for you, Robbie, since we're coming up to the, the, the top of the show. The, the first one is, and um, it's, it's a question and a comment. One of the things I've always respected about you is that you've got a, a breadth of knowledge in the, the knowledge domain that you apply open source to. So it doesn't matter if we're talking firewalls or endpoint protection. Um, you've done built clouds and, and hosted systems. You can talk about DR at great length and all the way to the, the other side of the spectrum to, to VoIP. If someone is listening to this show and says, all right, I respect the fact that open source has got a place, but where do I start? And the question number two is, of course, since we're coming up to the top of the show, is uh, what is it that you'd like to plug and make our listeners aware? Um, once again, and, and I don't think this is open source specific, but it is important. But I, I, I think the critical part of this is finding a partner to work with that has experience uh, in, in, in this uh, in this regard. It's it's really really important. And as I said, I, d I don't think it's open source specific. No matter the, uh, the 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 product set or the area that you're dealing with as as an end user, you need to get uh, partners who understand um, and understand the class of product that that you're looking at. So. Um, and, and, and I will mention as well that uh, in, in smaller companies, it's not just the, the, the products that they need to look at, but it's also a process and procedure. Uh, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that smaller companies with smaller budgets can look at uh, to improve their, their, their security and, and reduce their, their, their attack surface. Um, but once again, it, it comes to the partner that you work with. Uh, you need to find a partner that can, um, that understands your requirements, that understands the class of, of product or application, whatever the case may be, that, that you're looking at. Uh, and, and I think if you find that partner to work with and you work with them well, you're going to have a good experience. Um, and then, yeah, to, to, to plug, I'll, I'll say I've, I've been running a, a, my personal blog for probably about 15 years or so. There's hundreds of articles on there covering a, a, a breadth of, of areas and, and, and knowledge as, as well. Uh, as you said, I'm a bit of a, a know-it-all. <laughs> um, but... Um, but yeah, to to to, uh, to to be honest, there's a lot of useful information there, especially for 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 SMEs, um, and and um, and and also uh, just uh, you know people on their own who who are looking for a little bit more sort of uh, general information on IT, IT security, etc. So we'll we'll put the URL in 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 the show notes after. Yeah, no problem. We'll definitely make sure to do that. I think uh, I skimmed through that the other day and I thought, wow, there's uh, this a lot of cool stuff on here that um, yeah, I need to go back to and, and read. So it's going to be just yet another open tab in my hundreds of open Safari tabs. 
<laughs> but uh, Robbie, thank you very much for 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 sort of sharing your knowledge with us and your your passion for you know open source stuff. I think that was really interesting to me. I um, it's quite funny. Not not too long ago, I um I needed to do something, and I you know I'm a I'm a Debian slash Ubuntu guy. Whenever I need a, a Linux system, that's usually where I go. But I thought, let me try. I want to get back to messing around with CentOS, and I went looking for the CentOS project. I was like. What the hell happened to CentOS? It's gone. <laughs> well, now I know what happened because I didn't. I must have missed that. <laughs> so, well, Chris, if if yeah, if you if you're really looking for a challenge, I've I've been running Slackware since the mid '90s. Uh, Slackware Linux is actually one of the first uh, open source Linux uh, distributions that that came out. It was actually called SLS in 1991, and then changed its name. It that's going far back, 1991. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but if you're looking for a challenge, Slackware Linux. Jeez. <laughs> oh, now I like. I, I'll be honest. I like MacOS. It works nicely for me. I do have another machine on my desk here that has Parrot uh, on it, which I mess around with as well. But anyway, maybe that's a story for another for another episode. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, thank you for sharing your your knowledge and your passion with us. And yeah, we look forward to having you back again whenever whenever you want. Chris and Nicholas, thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Robbie. Hey everyone, before you go. We just wanted to say thank you for listening. We really enjoy putting this podcast together for you every two weeks. Please visit us at thearchitects.cloud or alternatively drop us a tweet. We'd love to hear what you have to say. At the Cloud Arc.